Oh, we're awake. Sorry about that. My bad. My name's Matt. Uh, great to be with you this morning. If I haven't met you uh, before, I'd love to um, say hi. Love to meet you after the service uh, over some coffee, some Byron Bay cookies. Love to have you stick around this New Year's Eve day. Um, what are your expectations for the new year? What are your expectations uh, for tomorrow, for the new year? I think most of us love the idea of a new year because we expect there to be some kind of change, some kind of doneness with the past that's finished and some kind of uh, new thing. Um, Maybe it's uh, a work-related thing. Maybe it's a new job that you're looking forward to. Maybe it's a new way of working. I'd love to find a new way to do my to-do list. I always struggle with that. Um, Maybe you've got a new calendar. You're ready for the new year. Uh, Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe you've just started a new relationship or you're looking forward to um, doing a new relationship. Maybe you've moved into a new home. Maybe there's a new person in your family, something like that. Maybe for you it's an adventure or an experience. Maybe you're starting to study something new in 2024. Maybe, um, Maybe it's starting a new sports team or maybe you've got some travel destination in mind, something new. Uh, The new year can be exciting because of all of that. Um, I don't think you have to look very far to realize that we live in a culture that's obsessed with the new. We're obsessed with newness. Uh, The Indian writer Siddhartha Deb and Anna Holmes, the American award-winning writer, uh, wrote a piece for the New York Times in 2015 exploring our culture's obsession with newness. Um, And they said this, they said, new products and services are available 24-7 at our fingertips, on our computers, our phones. As workers, we're constantly subjected to new interfaces, strategies, measures, and goals, while even our personal interactions have become a matter of of the endlessly renewed feed on social media, offering one more fresh update about our friends in a collage of disaster, bliss, insight, and banality. They go on, look at almost any industry of cultural creation, high or low, and you'll see the ways in which youth is embraced and amplified, celebrated and lusted after. Every industry lavishes attention on the young and the photogenic. Actresses, for example, are considered over the hill when they hit 45. It looks like I can't even start my acting career. (laughs) A sort of of impatience with the familiar keeps us glued to our computer screens and sorting through Uh, the latest updates on our social media feeds. We are obsessed with the new. And in part, I think it's for good reason. Um, John, we're not exactly sure which John, but John has this revelation. And it's a revelation or the revelation, by the way, not revelations. It's one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's of who Jesus is, and of how Jesus sees the world. That's what's happening in the Revelation. It's Jesus' perspective on what has happened, is happening, and will happen with our world. And right at the end of it, here on the screen, in chapter 21, verse 1, John is shown a picture of a new heaven and a new earth. The word new is actually mentioned four times in this short little passage. And so our interest, our interest with newness is not a new thing. It's actually an ancient thing. This is written 
2,000 years ago. Every culture has been obsessed with newness. Um, why is that? You know, for the people, um, why, why is that? Why is every culture obsessed with newness? For John, even in his day, it's the climax. It's actually where we're headed, where you and I, where his people, where the whole world is headed, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, why is that important? Why do we care so much about newness? A quick aside before we go on. I, I, I want to um, make a quick but important aside about the book of Revelation. I just want to recognize that we're dealing with a book that when you read it seems kind of different, doesn't it, to every other book in the Bible. Um, you might have your questions about it. Um, my experience has been that the book of Revelation has been quite polarizing amongst Christians. Um, some of us try to avoid it. Other, others of us throw, us, um, throw ourselves into it so much so that it's as if it's the only book in the Bible that matters. Can we do a little bit of Bible college together this morning, just really quickly before we launch into this text? Is that all right? Um, imagine I'm wearing a tweed jacket or something like that. Um, Richard Borkman, one of the foremost contemporary scholars uh, of the book of Revelation, finds three important little pointers in the first few verses that help readers understand what's happening here, how the book works, how to read it. He finds three things right here in the first few verses. Uh, he finds that it's a revelation, it's a prophecy, and it has an address. Very quickly, it's a revelation. Uh, revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means a revelation, an epiphany, an understanding. Um, and actually, apocalyptic literature was very popular um, from about 500 B.C., through to about the Middle Ages. Um, it developed particularly strongly during the post-exilic Jewish culture. Um, and Christopher Watkin, in his book, maybe some of you have read this, Biblical Critical Theory, the Bible College students amongst us, um, he writes this about apocalyptic literature, about the genre, the style in which we find ourselves today. He says, apocalyptic literature reveals things. It does this by giving us fresh eyes to see them, creating its own symbolic world that bathes our everyday reality in a new, disconcerting X-ray light. He says, in a sense, apocalyptic literature is a sequence of extended metaphors and repeated symbols with a purpose to show a reality that remains indistinct or hidden in everyday life. He actually says it's a, a communication style that still exists today in many sense. Uh, it's like advertising that uses a, an image like romance, let's say, to sell something like clothing. It's symbolism. And he says, let me remind the class that one thing we must not do with symbolism is try to find the real world equivalent of every detail. We've still got about a minute to go in our the theology lecture. You okay? He said two more things. Uh, not only is it a revelation, um, but it's a prophecy. That is, it's about things to come. And to an extent, the book of Revelation talks about the future. And then finally, it has an address. 
You notice there, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. I think this is really important. Did you know that? This book is just like any other letter. Like a letter that Paul sent or Peter sent to the churches. It's a letter that John is sending, but just in his own style of writing. And so it has a purpose. It's written to people for a purpose. And that will help us understand why this idea of new is important. Why is a new heavens and earth and new heavens and earth important? Because it was important to the people that John was writing to. Here's our first major point this morning. Newness. Why is newness important? Why was it important to John's audience? Well, newness is important because their world was falling apart. And our world is falling apart. You know this. Um, Al Jazeera, the largest news network in the Middle East and North Africa, released an article this week summing up 2023 in images. And they were images of the natural disasters that plagued the world in 2023. It said natural calamities and harsh weather dominated the news headlines in 2023. Seismic terrors, massive floods, raging wildflowers, uh, wildfires, unrelenting droughts, landslides, cyclones and storms hit around the world, killing and displacing tens of thousands of people. The most destructive, of course, um, was were the earthquakes of magnitude 7.8 and 7.5 in Turkey. Confirmed deaths totaled 50,000 people. Uh, about 16% of Turkey's population was affected. Here's a city worker, a city employee digging graves following the earthquake. This is a picture from March 14 showing the extreme drought in Spain where drinking water supplies have reached their lowest in 30 years. Here's some of the effects of floods in Beijing, China, where it recorded its heaviest rainfall in 140 years, forcing the evacuations of thousands, 21 deaths. In September in Morocco, 380,000 people were displaced um, by the earthquakes there. In the same month, there was the catastrophic flooding in Libya, killing 10,000 people. Um, even here in Australia, two weeks ago in Cairns, um, Cairns was declared a disaster zone. The natural world seems to be falling apart. Um, but humanity is also falling apart. Um, to add to natural disaster, we have the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, where 40,000 buildings have been damaged or destroyed, 20,000 people have died and 50,000 people are wounded. There's also the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine, where casualties just on the Ukrainian side are estimated at 100,000, and those wounded in action, 350,000. Now, if you and I are unaffected by this, maybe we're fairly comfortable in our suburban homes, our air conditioning, and this doesn't really touch us, you know there's something else falling apart. It's you. I don't have a photo of you on the screen, but you can look at me to see that humans are falling apart. Uh, when I was a younger minister, I worked at an Anglican church in, uh, over near Chatswood. And it was a church full of a lot of old people, lovely old Christian people. Um, but week after week, when I turned up to church between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., all I would hear about was their ailments. Um, and this went on and on and on. And I, in the first six months, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, what a bunch of complainers. 
some kind of pastor I was, right? Um, but as time went on, I realized, oh, this is not going to stop. And actually, it's inevitable. I was there for five years, and I noticed that I started changing and that I started experiencing ailments as I hit my 30s and my late 30s now. And this is just what they were experiencing as 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 9-year-olds. They were just experiencing their bodies falling apart. 90% of their life was just experiencing the suffering, the pain, whether it's a, you know, a new hip replacement, whether it's a back pain or removing an eye cataract or struggling with a cough. They're falling apart. And I realized I was one of them. I'm falling apart too. It's happening to all of us. Um, I was reading a supposedly harmless book with the kids the other night um, for bedtime, a book on space called Discovering Space. And it had this seemingly throwaway sentence in there. One day the earth will most likely be swallowed up by the sun. (laughs) Is there any hope for us? We're falling apart. Our world is falling apart. Not just out there, but in here. And ultimately, the earth is falling apart. Things are looking pretty grim. And here's the thing. The Bible actually says this is not natural. You know, I think we often disguise the idea of falling apartness or the ultimate end of that falling apartness, which is death, by saying it's just a natural cause, it's a natural thing. The Apostle Paul uh, in Romans says this, creation, nature, was subjected to frustration. It's in bondage, in slavery. It's not how it's supposed to be, to decay. Creation is groaning. It's upset. This is not right. It's not meant to be like this, Bible says. And the Bible actually says it's because of humanity's rejection of God that somehow creation itself, everything, is suffering, not just us. Imagine a watch, not a new digital iPhone watch, an iWatch, but imagine an old watch with all the cogs and the pieces and the levers and the pulleys. You know those ones? No, yeah, you know those ones. Imagine if you just took out one cog, one tiny cog. It's not as if the clock can say, oh, it's cool, I'll just keep going, everything's fine, I'll keep telling the time. No, the whole thing falls apart. That's what humanity's sin has done to the whole world. And so we're in a world that's in bondage to decay. And ultimately, there's one place where everything ends up. One place where everything goes, and it's death. I'm sorry to raise death on New Year's Eve. Maybe it seems inappropriate But perhaps it is most appropriate to talk about our greatest obstacle as we face 2024. Death itself. Death robs us from life, the very thing we were created for. I was once at a funeral. uh, My wife and I were at a funeral of some friends of ours um, who had lost a child that was, was 45 minutes old when it died. I have never seen a smaller coffin in my life coming down the aisle. The grief, the pain, the mourning in that room. Appropriately so. Because death is an intruder. Death is not meant to be here. 
And that's true not just for someone 45 minutes old or 45 years old or 90 years old. It's, it's true for all of us. Death is not meant to be here. So why is God making things new? Because our world is falling apart from the weight of sin and death. From the weight of sin and death. John's first century recipients of his letter, they were facing despair and death. It wasn't necessarily from natural disasters or from aging, although they are threats to the life that God has given us. But they were Christians whom the world had turned against. They were living lives like many of you are, following Jesus. And you're at such odds with your culture and your society that you feel the pinch on your life, the squeeze on your life, maybe financially like they did, where they willingly gave up the things that society told them they had to have so that they could be supportive of one another and to the gospel going forward. They felt the pressure from their peers to conform to worshipping the idols of their day, like ours, power, popularity, and prestige. They felt the battle in their, in their conscience between their passion and their will as they avoided sexual immorality and adultery, adultery and all the vices that their friends would tolerate. And they felt the pain of persecution as friends and family were thrown into prison or to the lions because they called Jesus Lord and not Caesar. And so they're wondering, perhaps just like you are today, As the world has turned against you and as the world is falling apart, they're wondering, is there any future? What hope do we have? Is it worth it? Why keep going? John says in answer to that question, there is a new heavens and a new earth. God is making everything new. That's our first point this morning, and I promise I will not keep you here till New Year's Day. Three more questions, but very quickly, what is this newness like? What is God offering our world? What is coming to those who will accept it? We're going to move through these five verses. Uh, Hopefully you have your Bible in front of you or it's up on the screen. We're going to move through them a little bit more closely, but actually uh, at quite a pace. I'm going to try and keep up on the PowerPoint. But notice what this newness is like. This is amazing. We're going to do a little Bible study together. I've underlined it for you and put it in gold so that you can follow along. But notice this newness, firstly, is all-encompassing. John says it's a new heavens and an earth. That's an idiom for everything. Nothing is left out of God's renewal. Not one stone is left unturned. Every star in the universe, every dust particle in the universe, every atom in the smallest creature, every plant on planet Earth... Everything is ultimately affected by this great transformation. It's comprehensive. That's the first little thing we see. But secondly, we notice there's no longer any sea. It doesn't mean you can't surf or there's no sunbaking or you can't come to a summer social. Please join us in 2024. Um, In ancient literature, the sea represented the place from which rebellion came from and chaos and danger emerged from. And so this means there's no longer any future threat to God's new creation. It's safe and secure. Thirdly, see that John doesn't just say that 
not just everything is new, but he specifically points to a new city, the new Jerusalem. This is talking about God's people. It's people. That's what a city is. It's people. It's the church. It's you and I who love Jesus Christ. We're there. And note most significantly where we come from. It says here, God's people come down out of heaven from God. It's as if God has finished His work with us and God's people are perfected. We're made in the image of God's Son. And the very next sentence says, we are um, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is speaking of the, the great marriage between heaven and earth. They are no longer two separate things where one is better than the other. They are together. They are one. John Lennon's dream coming true. God's dwelling place, the next line says, this is the most significant thing about heaven and earth coming together. God's dwelling place is now among the people. How about that? God takes up a new address. His residence is not in heaven, but it's in the heavenly earth. And this word, this little word for dwelling here is actually the word for tent. And it's, uh, it's casting our minds back to the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle before the temple. But rather than it being an impermanent, an impersonal place where God met with one man for one moment once a year, God is not meeting at all. God is living. God is living. He takes up residence among his people. Go to the end of verse 4, the fifth, sixth thing we find. God is living with his people. At the end of verse 4, it says this, The old order of things has passed away and everything has become new. I find this absolutely mind-blowing. I want to take you there quickly. Um, this word for passed away is not just as if um, the old has gone. It signifies a completely new thing. It's the same word used when Jesus heals someone from leprosy. It says that the leprosy left him or her. And the person is left completely healed, aren't they? A new operating system, a new body. It's to discontinue something and to begin something new. Commentators point out that that word new there, in the Greek, there's actually two words for new. Still got my tweed jacket on. Two words for new. There's kainos and neos. Kainos speaks about, or sorry, neos speaks about um, newness that has to do with time. And kainos speaks to do with newness as in freshness. In our English language, we don't have this. In fact, in our current world, we don't have this. You only get something fresh if it is new in terms of time, right? Naomi and I have been trying to extend the life of our fruit uh, during these summer months. And so we've taken the fruit bowl, we've stuck it in the fridge. But even after a few days, I reach into that fridge, I grab that nectarine, and time has stolen its freshness, its newness. A baby is fresh because it's brand new. An iPhone is new because it's just been released. Time and freshness go together in our day. But what John has a vision of is something entirely different than what you and I have ever experienced. This is freshness without time. In fact, this is the new creation. It's called that because it will only ever be new. It will never be old. 
and it will only be ever getting newer. Imagine that. It's newness, and it will only be ever getting newer. Not younger as you and I understand it, but fresher and newer. It's not Benjamin Button, um, but it's getting newer. It's the new creation. That is true for your body, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15. That is new for creation, the Bible says in Romans 8. It is true for you. It is true for the world. Newness. And that's something you can fathom in 2024. Two final quick questions. Firstly, in terms of application, how does this change today? What does it mean? Scott, I'm going to pick you out of the crowd. Scott Sanders, what does this mean for you today? I'm going to tell you. It's okay. Rhetorical question. What does this mean for you today? How does this new future that God is bringing to us change today? Well, let me quote someone on the subject of hope and how it changes today. And then I'm going to tell you who it is. They said this. I heard this on the radio yesterday. Hope, can you see that? It's pretty tiny. Hope is what keeps everyone going. And when you have hope, you're happy. You can step forward. You don't feel broken or shattered, even in the midst of a passing away, and so on. It was actually Costa Georgiatis, um, the Australian landscaper and television presenter from ABC. He was speaking on Conversations, that program with Richard Feidler. And he was actually talking about gardens. But this is exactly what the new heavenly garden city can do for you. And if a garden or a small plot of soil and vegetation can give that calm to a person and certainty and knowledge that things are moving forward and help you take a step forward and not be completely destroyed or broken by what you're going through. If a garden, a small plot of land on your property today can do that for you, imagine what a perfect, new, heavenly garden temple city where the glory of God outshines the sun. Imagine what that can do for a person. Now, how does it work? Let's explore this together. How does that hope, how does that future garden city help you today? Let's explore what the Bible says. The New Testament in various places, I guess it's actually all about this, but in various places it points specifically to how the future impacts the present. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the transformation of our human bodies, he says this, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, he says, Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's saying, because God's kingdom is coming, don't give up. Don't give up. And it makes sense not to to give up because you know as you go about doing God's work in this world, one day it will flourish. It will come into being. It will land here and all your work will make sense. That's exactly what Costa said when he said the Christian can be calm. Or he, said the, he said people can be calm if you have a, a hope, if you have a garden. There's no panic to the Christian. Listen, you are not missing out on anything if your life doesn't change dramatically in 2024. 
No matter what your life looks like, if you're a Christian, if you have your hope in a new heavens and new earth, you're not missing out on anything. You can't. Because one day you will get everything with God's kingdom. And so you don't have to try and chase the wind like others. Or try and imagine that your work has meaning and purpose because you can find it as you do God's work now. The Apostle Paul, secondly, in Romans 8, he says this. He doesn't just talk about finding meaning and purpose by, doing, by continuing to do God's work. But he says, actually, you can find help in suffering. Whatever you're going through, the Apostle Paul says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, he says, you know, Christians can do the math. Of course, when you're going through suffering, it is hard and it is painful. But he says a Christian can actually do the math. That's what the word consider there means. It's an accounting term, a mathematical term for doing an equation. It says you can compare and contrast. You can calculate. Is what I'm going through now worth comparing to what I will receive? The Apostle Paul says it's not even worth doing the math. The comparison's ridiculous. Like Costa said, you don't have to feel completely broken or shattered, even in the midst of death. Because you can do the math. Finally, the Apostle Peter, he says, one of Jesus' closest friends, he says, how does this change today, Scott? Just picking on you, buddy. Love you. He says, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God, with Him. He's saying, you know, just like a garden that is always moving and always growing, it's inevitable. And the secret is just to work alongside it. The kingdom of God is inevitable. It's coming. And the appropriate way to live your life right now is to act in line with it. To be holy, to be godly, to be found spotless, blameless, and in relationship with God. And listen, your, your efforts towards holiness and your efforts towards godliness are not what earn you a place in God's kingdom. That's ridiculous. We could never be good enough. But the Bible says it is a sign that you belong to it. It's a sign that you belong to it. And so our final question this morning is who is this for? Who is the new heavens and new earth for? Who gets the hope of tomorrow? What do you expect the Bible to say right now on that? What do you expect? I imagine most of us expect, who's it for? It's for the good. It's for those who are actually just trying to be good. It's for the religious, maybe those who come to church on New Year's Day. Good on you, by the way. I was expecting like four people, me, Jonty, Liv, Viana. Um, so great to have you here. So encouraging. What an encouragement just to keep on going. You're a part. This, this is living as if the future is real. God's future is real. Who gets it? Those who come to church? You know, Grant said last week, if you remember, he said, actually, the primary category that God has for humanity, the only category that matters today, is not good and bad. It's about pride or humility. It's about recognizing you need God. Have a look at what verse 6 says. It says, to the thirsty. God says, and this is actually probably the second time that God ever speaks in the book of Revelation. God says, 
to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment to the thirsty. You know, the other place in the Bible that speaks of thirst, says I thirst, it's Jesus on the cross, isn't it? Jesus says, I thirst. And why does Jesus, hanging on the cross, say, I thirst? I think it shows us his humanity. That he's, he really was human. He is human. And when he died on the cross, he was experiencing the, the, the deepest depths of human experience. He was facing death himself. And in that moment, he's physically thirsty. And when you reach that point of the depths of human experience, you recognize you are needy. And so he says, I thirst. And so he's showing us, you know, that our experience of life, the weight of sin and death, the falling apartness of this world, the world turned against you, you turned against yourself, where do you end up? You end up thirsty and needy. And when Jesus says, I thirst, it's because he experiences what you and I should experience, being separated from God, being under the full weight of God's anger and God's judgment, under the full weight of what it is to be human. He experienced that. And he is thirsty so that you your thirst can be quenched so that you never have to be thirsty. And if you are willing to say from your own experience of life, in your, in your humanity, from the depths of your, your humanity like he did, if you are able to say, if you are willing to say, I thirst, I need God and I won't be satisfied unless I have God himself. I won't be satisfied in this life except in Jesus then you inherit the new heavens and the new earth. That's who it's for. To those who are unsatisfied with what this world has to offer, the new heavens and the earth are for you. You know, maybe you have tasted this world and everything it has to offer. The lifestyle, doing things your way, the money, the power, the pride, the sex, the one-upmanship, the working till you're exhausted, the trying to be the nice guy, the family man, the perfect wife, the most beautiful person. Perhaps you've spent the whole life and all your money and all you have. But maybe you found it all comes up dry. If you can admit it, if you're still thirsty, the new heavens and the new earth are for you. God's new heaven and God's new earth are for you. Not if you're perfect, not if you're good, not if you're okay, not if you're beautiful, rich, sated with who you are and what you have, but for those who thirst, for those who say, I need more. My prayer for us this New Year's Eve is not that you will find newness in 2024, but rather in the not-so-distant, the around-the-corner hope of the new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray. God of all grace, you who are making everything new. God, would you make us thirsty for it? Make all our senses desperate for it. May everything we see, taste, touch, hear, and smell this coming year make us groan inwardly for the new creation. 
May the beauty of the future be without equal in the here and now. May our suffering seem to add up to nothing as we consider what is to come. And may our lives today begin to reflect the value of it. We ask all this for our good and your glory. Amen.